Uh, welcome everyone, good evening. Um, welcome to the Beef and Lamb Farming for Profit South Otago webinar. Um, today we're talking to Kate Liversidge and um, just before we get kicked off, I'll just say that could everyone just remain uh, muted and videos off just to make sure that everyone gets the same audio, um, that'd be great. Um, today we would like to um, do sustainable farming systems. So we've got the lovely Kate Liversidge from Arla Foods which is a farmer owned dairy cooperative and is one of the largest in the world. Um, they are passionate about producing high quality milk in a responsible way. Um, the farmer owners are among the most climate efficient dairy farmers in the world. And they've created the world's largest externally validated climate data sets from their dairy farms um, to aid in their journey to carbon net zero by 2050. Um, Kate is a senior manager of the agriculture operations at Arla Foods. Um, she is passionate about delivering sustainable change on farm and how this is commercialised with customers to deliver for the consumer. She has uh, previous experience in farm standards, agriculture innovation and account management alongside a keen interest in her family farm. So welcome Kate. Um, Kate will be discussing market trends, environmental challenges and opportunities for their farmers and how they tackle their challenges with the consumer mindset. Um, so today we're just going to put um, questions in the chat box and we'll ask them on behalf of you um, at particular times. So um, if you have any questions throughout the time, um, please just let me know in the chat box and we'll ask them on behalf. So just before we get kicked off as well, I'd just like to introduce Hannah Blakely, who's the new um, Beef and Lamb Southern South Island Extension Manager. Um, if you'd just like to say hello, Hannah. Hi, everyone. Nice to be on tonight. Cool. Thanks, Hannah. Okay, cool. So we'll get kicked off. Um, Kate, if you'd like to um, share your screen. Yeah. <clears throat> Cool, give me a shot. Can you see that? Yep, perfect. We can see that. And I'll just hand over to you, Kate. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll say good evening to you guys, but it's definitely good morning here. It's half past eight in the morning here in um, sunny Yorkshire in the north of the UK. So, uh, yeah, as Megan has uh, introduced, so we're going to be talking today mostly around, I guess, carbon, climate, sustainability. Um, I'm very conscious that this isn't a group of dairy farmers, so I will try and uh, it's going to be a bit dairy heavy, but I'll try and tweak it to be relevant to the red meat sector as well. Um, so I think a, a particularly strong link there would be uh, calves or bull calves, as we call them over here. So just to introduce myself a little bit. Um, so I'm based up in the northeast of the UK, um, near the city of York, uh, which is famous for Vikings and a cathedral and things like that. Um, and I'm from a, a family farming background. So my family were first generation farmers. Um, I grew up on a dairy, beef and arable farm. Um, so since my brother has taken over the farm and he's now uh, he's now farming 180, as you can see down in this bottom left-hand corner, 180 Holsteins running them through four robots um, and battling with a serious lack of rain over here at the moment. Um, meanwhile, I live uh, on my husband's beef and arable farm and this is our daughter getting stuck in uh, pushing up the feed for the beef cattle and we've just finished harvest over here in an unbelievably record early timing because we're still in the thick of a drought um, but it's lovely to have the grain in the shed home and dry so we'll see whether we get enough moisture to drill any crops this autumn. Um, my background I guess I've done a degree in agriculture I then actually came over to New Zealand to work on a beef sheep and dairy farm in the North Island on the wild west coast um, and then returned back to the UK to work as a dairy consultant uh, and joined Arla Foods in 2017 uh, a company I guess pretty close to my heart as we ourselves um, my family are Arla farmer owners um, and I'll talk a bit more about what the, what the co-op is I know that to you guys over in New Zealand um, but yeah my job is working within the agriculture team working really closely with farmers so yeah this is my kind of day-to-day uh, -day working with farmers on farm um, but also working internally with our commercial teams and really selling the story of what our farmers are doing and following it right the way through to marketing and yeah I think the big thing that I'm really passionate about is selling all the hard work that goes on on farms uh, and making sure that that gets right the way through and consumers are paying for it to keep everything spinning so when I talk about um, Arla Foods as a business uh, Megan's already introduced it we're probably one of 
the world's biggest dairy companies. And our vision is to create the future of dairy and bring health and inspiration to the world naturally. I think um, we're really proud of the fact that we've got a fantastic nutritious product to sell. Um, and we're selling that across the globe in both developed and developing markets where I think dairy plays a, a very different role um, uh, to, to different nations. And, and I think that we're really capitalizing on how we can spread uh, dairy consumption because it is such a fantastic product. And so we're all about good growth. Um, you can see here we have a mission to secure the highest value of um, the highest value for our farmers milk and create opportunities for, for their growth. And one of our uh, you know, underlying um, non-negotiables is that our farmers can produce as much milk as they like. We don't have, we don't cap them or quota them. Once you are an Arla farmer owner in the co-op, we will find markets to sell that milk. So we have to, as a business, continue to look for new strategies and make sure that we've got an ambitious strategy um, so that our farmers continue, continue to grow their own businesses back at home on the farm. But we consider that the, the whole Arla business is their Arla business as well. Um, and so we build it, we build our core business around four big brands, um, but we are trading across all the different categories. About 20% of our milk is, is traded um, as uh, bulk items, so on, on the GDT as ingredients. And then we go right the way through to, uh, you know, very branded butter, cheese, yogurts, all sorts of uh, fresh milks, milk-based beverages. Um, yeah, very diverse portfolio. And so to, to talk about the co-op in numbers, we've got 8,900 owners um, and our milk intake is 3.6 billion kilos. Um, and to try and put that, I guess, into some context for you guys, we're at 11.2 billion euros. And I read something just a couple of days ago, New Zealand's Fonterra is at 12.5 billion euros. So to put that into context of the kind of size we're talking um, our four global brands there, the, the Arla brand is selling anything from fresh milk to yogurt, lots of different um, uh, developments there. Puck is a really strong ambient cheese brand in the Middle East. Uh, Castello is a cheese and Lurpak is a very famous butter over here, which at the moment has been kind of the, um, the poster of the cost of living crisis where we've had Lurpak with security stickers on it in um, shops because it's so expensive at the moment. Um, and we are the largest organic dairy producer in the world um, and have had quite uh, a big strategy to grow our organic milk pool to take advantage of um, growth opportunities in the same way New Zealand has over in Asia. So when we split, when we talk about the split of the countries, the, the co-op originated in Scandinavia. I, I guess its heart is in Denmark. Our head office is in Denmark. And you can see here that we've got farmers in seven different countries and we split these into four core areas. So Denmark, Sweden, um, we call it Central Europe and then uh, where I'm sat today in the UK. And on the left of the screen, you can see what we call is um, the milk wheel. So this is, I guess, we bring in more farmers, which creates more milk. That means we can invest in production sites, infrastructure, marketing, innovation to create new products so that we get more consumers, more customers, leading to make, making sure that we maintain a competitive milk price, which allows us to bring on more farmers, more milk, and the whole thing keeps spinning. So I think it's really important for our existing farmer owners that we grow in a responsible way. We don't want to go out and get more farmers until um, there's going to, we don't want to jeopardize the milk price that our existing farmer owners are receiving. Um, and obviously, ultimately, we are absolutely judged on our on our milk price. That's like our top KPI uh, to our farmers. Um, and we work in a very democratic way. Our farmers are on our board with the CEO and the decision making process absolutely does uh, involve farmers. And we can't get anything uh, major through without farmer sign off. Um, and we have a very democratic process that runs from the kind of grassroots level in districts, regions, countries, uh, international boards right up to on the the main board there's two farmers from each area sit alongside our CEO on that uh, top business board so it really is um, uh, a farmer led farmer owned and farmers are at the heart of what we do um, and uh, yeah I know that that's not something that's new uh, to New Zealand I know you guys also work in a very co cooperative fashion as well um, and it's something that we have grown a lot over the years and it's through kind of mergers and acquisitions. And that's exactly how the UK, I guess, has, has joined this Scandinavian uh, co-op. But all farmers are equal owners, whether you supply 50 kilos of milk or 50 million kilos of milk. Everybody has the same 
right to be part of the co-op. And particularly, I guess, where I'm sat in the UK, um, so Arla is now a, a really significant player in the UK and actually the fourth biggest food and drink company. Um, and we're absolutely a, a household brand over here, which actually six, seven years ago, no one had really heard of Arla. So Arla's had a, a massive um, growth trajectory here in the UK. Um, and one in four British Arla farmers own, um, well, farmers own uh, and, and we're actually responsible for 20, a quarter of the whole of the group's turnover. So we've got a huge retail market here, which is um, feeding back into the, the, the main business. And, and this is what it's all about, that we grow in different areas and we have different strengths in different areas. But it all goes back into the same pot and all the farmers receive the same milk price, no matter where you sit. Uh, and I think there's a very one Arla view to the same standards, the same price, the same opportunities. Um, and it's uh, that can sometimes can be a challenge because we're operating across seven different countries with different uh, government legislations and climate agendas and uh, sometimes quite different customer strategies as well. So it's a really interesting business to be part of. But I think the uh, the overarching uh, message is that leading quite a juggernaut all in the same direction is a challenge at times but the strength of the farmer co-op is huge um, and something that we really do sell the farmer owned message to our customers as well so this is a bit of a corporate slide this i guess is our strategic house and you can see here it's uh we've got leading sustainable dairy right up there alongside scaling to grow digitalization and obviously uh making efficiencies right the way across our supply chain but Never has dairy and dairy farming been so high up the business plan, I don't think, in terms of that we cannot achieve our future future plans with um, customers and growth without bringing the farmers right to the front of that because uh, everything is really now around climate, carbon, bringing the carbon footprint down, um, producing food in a responsible way, um, but maintaining the growth of the business within that. So. I think this was just to say that within our with our future 26, so it's our strategy up to 2026, dairy farming has uh, probably never been a bigger part of that, which is it's really positive to see working within the agriculture team. And yeah, as I've already mentioned, sustainability definitely is our biggest challenge. We know that consumers are demanding more sustainable choices. Um, but as I mentioned previously, we have a lot of different types of consumers from the um, highly developed uh, consumers who've got a lot more to spend on their diet right the way through to consumers that are only just introducing a very basic dairy to their diet as well but if I'm talking about on a European level particularly the retailers expect suppliers to drive the sustainable product development um, they almost set their targets and set their stall out and we have to make it happen which is an interesting place to be but we're also ducking and diving between how governments are setting targets, policies, um, which impacts our, our farmers on a day-to-day, week-to-week and year-to-year -year basis. And they're trying to make their investment decisions, business plan changes alongside what their um, local government and legislation is saying. And, and we've got to make sure that our strategy doesn't either contradict that or, or work in a different direction. So I think that it's a very, it's a bit of a minefield at times, but sustainability is absolutely um, one of the biggest challenges we face, but a huge opportunity as well to place ourselves to be a really well trusted brand, which will drive sales and allow us to grow. So I think just leading through to um, hey. where we're going with, oh yeah. Sorry, just to interrupt with a question. This had a question in the chat box. Yeah. Um, do you see a difference in what consumers want across markets and how does this impact um, at a farm level? Yeah, so I think um, we definitely do see different trends. I think a, a good example of that would be the, the Swedish consumer uh, is much more, they're, they're more driven by, um, they call it ecosystem services. So that could be things like biodiversity. I think that that plays a much bigger part in, in that market than we see in some of the other markets. And that leads the farmers to being maybe a little bit further ahead with that those kind of things. Uh, we've also seen see different demands from different retailers so the everybody except for the uk countries are, are buying non-gm feed because that's something that 
the consumers on the continent or the customers on the continent are asking for as part of their contracts. So I think we do start to see differences uh, in demand and then that makes it very difficult to keep to a one co-op model of um, one set of standards. But I think that's why we have to create our programs, which I'll go on to talk to next, to have a broad enough base that they can then be uh, tweaked and adjusted to deliver for, for local customers. But when we're operating across such a large geographical region we're always going to have differences um differences in demand and so um does one farmer get one vote how does that work with a co-op yes yeah so with the co-op um basically all the areas are split into districts each district has a uh, a chairman and a vice chairman to represent them they then bring their district's views forward to what we call an area forum so the area would be there nation so the uk denmark sweden or central europe um they then have a number of representatives that sit on what we call is the board of representatives there's about 200 of those farmers and then that ladders up to eventually like i say two farmers from each area sit on the actual board um with the the heads of all the respective functions within arla so yeah absolutely i think it's um we, we don't necessarily vote every single farmer on every single matter um, but there is the opportunity for any farmer at any level to raise a motion to the board um, with the support of their district, their region um, or their area. So definitely, I think farmers, um, we hope that farmers feel as though their, their voice is heard. And I think that um, the success of what we roll out whenever we bring anything in new, um, you have to gain the buy in at every different level before you're ever going to make it happen that's not to say that all farmers love everything that we do <laughs> because i think um every farmer is completely different and everybody's working from a, a different point of view but on the whole um i would say our farmers are genuinely behind this sustainable journey that but that's not to say that it isn't difficult and we just had another question here um talking about government policies how has the recent dutch emission cut deal impacted your business and your forecast of the dutch region supply yeah, it's a really interesting one. That I'm sure you'll, it might have made it to your press of the the Dutch farmers protesting, and the, and they are under such hard, like maybe not harsh, but just very far ahead environmental um, legislation. So we don't have a huge number of Dutch farmers. I would say that it, they're actually quite a small proportion. Um, but our production, one of our biggest production sites, is in northern Germany. So we do pull milk across borders. Um, and yeah, it absolutely is a challenge of how those, I, I talked a lot about, we want our farmers to grow and we want to give them the opportunity to grow. And I think in that sense, it's the, it's the government that's capping what they're able to do, but you can't get away from the fact that they are a small country with a small landmass with a huge output. Um, and quite rightly, there's quite a lot of intensification over there. So I think this is something that we have to try and navigate and I'll talk about it a little bit later as to when we're talking about, I guess, land use efficiency and fertilizer use, it, it might not actually be us as Arla that are calling the shots on that and that it's it's other influences on the farm. But um, we're not the only country, uh, the only company that are, are battling the challenges to how to work within those legislations. They, Fries and Campina are also a big um, cooperative who, who are based in the Netherlands um, and they're, they are as ambitious in growing as we are. And I think both companies are trying to figure out how we can uh, navigate the legislative landscape. But I think that the Netherlands are just on the leading edge of it and it is probably coming to the rest of us pretty quickly. So the, we're also looking to see with how, how they're dealing with it as to when when and if those kind of similar legislation start to roll out in the other countries. So, yeah, I would say because they're not a huge, huge part of our business, it isn't causing a massive impact right now, but we're certainly keeping a keen eye on it as to how that could impact the rest of our co-op because it's all going in the same direction, I would say. Same as us, <laughs> as yeah. we watch yeah. and learn. But um, thank you for that and keep the questions coming. Make sure you put them in the chat box. Thank you, I'll let you carry on. <laughs> Brilliant, that's great, thank you very much. So. When it comes on to how we're uh, on a journey to demonstrate that we can feed the world sustainably. So our strategy is based on science-based targets. And I chuck this in because I want, I'm not sure how much science-based targets gets thrown around. Uh, it certainly gets thrown around a lot here. And a lot of people, I know I certainly didn't understand what does that actually mean, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. So I found this pretty neat um, diagram, which really shows you what the do nothing scenario is what the probably not quite hitting where we need to be scenario is and where this 1.5 comes into it in relation to the carbon budget. Um, 
So we've got to focus in a holistic fashion of sustainability right the way across the supply chain. So within the headlines, I guess, we, we need to reduce on-farm emissions by 30%. We also need to get plastic, uh, plastic down to zero percent and you can see we've put that on own brand products we're obviously working with with our customers uh probably on extremely similar strategies but it's easier for us to start with our own brand products and again i don't know what the situation is over with you but at one point um recycled plastic was more expensive than virgin plastic because there is not the infrastructure um here or i think in europe to actually process all of this uh, all of this plastic to get the, the what's called rdpe through the system and back into new products so that's a, something that other industries are struggling to actually keep up with the demand and and that's something that we then lobby governments to try and make sure that everybody is uh, moving in the same direction to achieve these targets but it's a it's an interesting conundrum as to how quickly the supply industries to what we're trying to do can also keep up with us and it's not just us it's it's every other food business or healthcare or everyone is, has got very similar targets like this um, obviously reducing waste is a big one and all um, looking for renewable energy at all of our sites so our fresh milk facility near London is um, I think it was the first net zero dairy so that's using a huge amount of sort of heat recovery we've got an AD on site solar panels that, that was built from scratch I think in 2014 so it, it had the luxury of being able to start out with the right technology rather than sort of retrofitting um, but yeah, making sure that we've got renewable energy sources, um, that's now flowing right the way down to farm as well. And, and it's now looking at, can we create the energy on farm or is it about farmers negotiating energy contracts which are using renewable energy? So the business has come a long way. And I think that we have reduced carbon emissions, whether it's as knowingly um, as, uh, as we are right now. I think naturally carbon emissions come down as you become more efficient. So I think it's been profit driven in the past and now we're, we've, we've made those quick wins and easy gains from just a productivity efficiency point of view. Um, and now it's really drilling down to where's the carbon coming from and how do we tackle that? And how do we also tackle it at the same time as not knocking production? So Arla's carbon emissions are around half the global average. I think when you look at um, it, it'll probably be the same for, for beef and lamb, but in dairy, if you take a dairy global average, that will include a farmer in India that has two cows, but you know, as well as the farm in Saudi that has 22,000 cows. So I think you've got to be a little bit careful when you look at um, benchmarking to the global average. But where we are in terms of our um, emissions per kilo of milk, I don't think that should be a percent. I think that's a, that should be a grams per litre, 1.15 grams of carbon per, per kilo of milk. Um, and we already do have some really good stories to tell and our data, this is where the data really comes into its own, that we already know that our farmers, we've got 533 farmers that are producing green energy from wind or solar. So that comes from creating this big database of information that we have. And I'll, I'll come on to that. So, yeah, I've just mentioned about the global average, what the Europe average is and what the ALA average is. So I think this side of the graph is certainly more, more relevant as to how we're we benchmarking against our um, most similar uh, producers. Um, so we're already in a good place, I think, is the, is the overarching message of this. But we know that in order to get to carbon net zero by 2050, I don't know if it's the same over with you, but everybody seems to have come out with a carbon net zero by 20, 2050 claim. Some people have gone bold and gone 2040, but that's pretty scary when we're already in 2022. Um, and when we talk about scopes, essentially what you need to know is that farm sits in scope three. Um, and within our end-to-end -end carbon footprint, our 85% of it is attributed to the farm. So we can make our sites and our logistics and everything as efficient as we like, but we will never get to net zero or the reductions that we need to without engaging with our farmers. Clearly, that is the most difficult task because we've got nearly 9,000 of them and they're all doing it slightly different. Um, and I guess as a company, it's where we have the least control. So it, it is the hardest, to, hardest place to make a change. But the idea is that if we have a data-led approach, you guys are the masters of this. If you, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. Um, and so we've been measuring farm emissions now for three years. Um, and 90% of our farmers um, have taken part in a, we call it a climate check, but it's the ALA carbon footprint. And that allows us to create cool bits of data like this to show that where are the emissions coming from? Um, and again, you get a lot of people saying, oh, why aren't we covering our farms in wind turbines? Because that's not going to solve our problem. We've got 
you know, 5% of the carbon footprint comes from energy use. Where we really need to be looking at is how the cow is being fed, how efficient is that? She, she is a ruminant and she is always going to produce um, emissions to a certain extent. And I think it's about how we can work within, uh, work within our systems and efficiencies to make sure that we're reducing the on-farm emissions. But this just gives a really nice diagram, I guess, and visual representation of where do the emissions come from? Because emissions is a big overarching umbrella term. Um, and we also have the added complication. I don't know if there's much peatland, Megan, in New Zealand, but peat is a pretty tricky customer to deal with because it's not necessarily the farmer's fault that they are farming land that has a high um, percentage of peat. And peat can really, really impact your carbon footprint. And how do you deal with that fairly in a cooperative manner? We, we haven't quite solved that yet. <laughs> um, but what we're looking for is where do we get the big wins first? So we want to reduce our um, carbon footprint by 30% by 2030. It's quite a nice snappy tagline, um, but how do we actually do it? I think, so we, we talk about big the big five. These are five, I guess, big wins where if we can win in these five areas on farm, that will get us a lot of the way to our 30% by 2030. And you're probably sat there thinking, well, this is really obvious stuff. Feed efficiency, you want to get more more liters of milk per uh, dry matter of kilos of dry matter that are fed to the cows we need to feed protein efficiently so that it's not just going in one end and straight out the other it's far too expensive at the moment to do that anyway animal robustness is um lifespan of the cows um because ultimately if we can get more from the cows that we have on the ground and not have more cows on the ground um how long they live what's their lifetime performance so robustness, I guess, encapsulates all of that. Fertilizer use, I'm talking both granular fertilizer, artificial fertilizer and manure use. So basically how are we fertilizing the ground? And again, farmers are looking at this anyway due to the eye-watering cost of the stuff at the moment. Um, and then land use is looking at pretty much the same as number one, but for are you getting the, the best tonnage of whatever that feed is from that ground area? Um, and this is where I guess it gets really interesting because depending on your system, you might perform really well in feed efficiency and then be, you know, completely at the other end of the scale for land use. And this is where the intensive and extensive systems, I guess, go in different directions. But ultimately, farmers have already been working on this stuff for decades because it makes financial sense. And it's now getting them to turn it and to look at um, honing where these areas are holding up their their climate check and their carbon footprint and now we're starting to see year on year change with that um these are the big areas that we're i guess majoring on and we know that some farmers are really far ahead on this and absolutely best in class but as with any kind of bell curve we've also got a lot of farmers who could learn from from the best um and again this isn't new news farmer knowledge sharing discussion groups um data to manage things effectively um and really i guess giving everybody a, a focus as to right how are we going to get to our 30 percent by 2030 so this is the big focus at the moment um and we're talking about the big five a lot and there's a huge amount of work that goes behind this um pilot farms groups just like this that, that you're partaking in today um and it's great that i guess we're getting out out the other side of covid so that we can actually get face to face with farmers as well to discuss all of these things um so yeah, this is a, this is a big area that we're working on right now, um, and we will be running what we call farmhouse meetings in the autumn about protein efficiency as well. So that's our that's what's on the table at the moment for us. Um, Kate, I might just interrupt with a question. Yeah, um, just have one in the chat box. Um, how will your farmers reduce their on-farm emissions? I think you might have covered this a little bit. And um, so, how will your farmers reduce their on-farm emissions? And is the absolute emissions or per litre? And I think you might have covered that a little bit in the slide previously. But do you have yeah? So it, levers, it is on a like, per litre. Yeah. Do you have like specific levers that farmers can pull to reduce their emissions? Is that like a, a data set that you have um, that you've created from the data set that you've got? Yeah. So when the farmers um, submit their information they will be given different areas as to where where their performance lies um, and we are always to be able to I guess benchmark it back to the same um, it is uh, a per litre basis so again that does, you know that allows for differences in herd size and systems and things like that um, but yeah the, the levers that we're pulling I guess were those big five that we've just discussed 
Um, but we've also got to be now planning ahead of that. What's the the next bit? Because the 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 big wins are the easy bits. It's when you get down into the marginal gains where we're only talking sort of like one percent reductions. And I haven't included it here, but we've 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 mapped out where are the different bits going to get us to. And I think, for example, feed efficiency I think accounts for about eight percent. Whereas when you get down into feed additives and biochar and things like that they're only sort of very small one percent gains and it'll be nice when we get to that stage but I think we've got some bigger uh, bigger issues to tackle first just around efficiency but when you then throw in some economical challenges as well like we're facing now um you know if, if feed is very expensive farmers might not actually be feeding the correct levels that the cows need we, I've just already mentioned we're, we're in a drought we've basically got no grass at the minute that's going to mean the farmers are going to be buying in more bought-in feed. That's going to push up the carbon footprint because they're bringing things onto farm that are not grown on that farm. So I think it's really important that as we get through the uh, through our journey that we can start to look at things on a three-year rolling average or a five-year rolling average because we know that it's not going to incrementally come down. The scientists would love it to come down incrementally the same year on year, but we all know that season to season things change both environmentally and economically and, and it's how you kind of weather that storm, but keep the ongoing trajectory coming in the right direction. Um, and making sure that everybody in the business is clear about that, because my marketing colleagues would love for us to say that we've got a 10% year on year reduction, but trying to explain to them that it's not going to work like that. Um, and managing expectations of everybody in the business is, is really important. Absolutely agree. And just another question here, um, how, do you, how do farmers respond to being driven in the way relating to climate? Yeah, I think um, it's all about speaking to them in the right language, because I, I think I've already mentioned that these all these things are huge profit drivers. So if we can talk about how they're going to gain from this in terms of cash, as well as um, it driving their carbon footprint. And we are actually on at the very beginning of bringing those two things together of incentivizing farmers with money. <laughs> so the carrot rather than the stick incentivizing them to perform in areas like this um, or even more categoric areas of, you know, have you got biogas on your farm? Have you got green energy generation on your farm? Uh, are you using soya? Is it so, uh, deforestation free soya? So I think there's a, it'll be about talking to farmers in the right language for this um, and not just purely talking from a carbon aspect and, and where things maybe aren't something that they would do naturally themselves as part of a business decision, um, we would then have to incentivize them to do that, I guess. Uh, and I think as well, we're also trying to talk to them about how when we've got all the, the data, it's really important for things to be, you know, 100% of our farmers are doing this because then our marketing teams can go out and make a claim on products or make a claim within our um, brand strategy or marketing. So really trying to explain to farmers why it's really important some of the information that they're submitting that it doesn't just go into a, a vault for analysis that we're actually using that data to then sell it um which is important yeah definitely um that's all from me i'll let you carry on thank you cool cool so yeah um since 2020 we've done 16,000 climate checks so again climate checks we've had to standardize them across all of the countries because what we had was you know there was a uk version uh, there was a Danish version, a Swedish version. So what we did is actually created one ARLA climate check. Um, and that's obviously been accredited and fits with the science-based targets. But the idea is that the farmers go in and self-submit their data. And then that is verified by an on-farm advisor coming to check the information and talk it through with them. And then that will lead to then discussing the results and actually utilizing the data. I think farmers' biggest frustration is doing admin and data submissions that actually just then go into a black hole and nobody nobody uses it. So I think we're really trying to major on the fact that we are checking the data and it's important that the data is valid because we need to use the information. We as Arla need to use the information as you and, and you as farmers need to use the information as well. But we're really proud of the fact that we've got an over 90% participation rate. And I think when you attribute that to milk volume, it actually sits at 95%. So we're, we're very, very close to getting 100% of our farmers on board with this. I briefly mentioned it already, but our, our pilot programs, this is about uh, kind of on-farm trials, tests, farmer-to-farmer -farmer knowledge sharing. And the areas won't be a surprise looking at soil health, air and water, biodiversity and enhancing ecosystems. So we've got all sorts of pilots going on, protein pilots, regenerative farming pilots, 
feed additive trials. There's a lot of work going on. And that's where I guess the strength of our network across seven different countries, we try and cherry pick from the best of what's going on in all these different uh, local industries um, and bring that all together so that our farmers are gaining from uh, almost international information and, and being at the, the leading curve of it and just making sure that that knowledge is disseminated across the farmer network. So I've already kind of mentioned it. What we have now got, I think, the world's largest set of externally verified climate data from dairy farming. And this is about building transparency. So transparency with both our farmers, our customers, government stakeholders. Um, it puts you in a lot better position to lobby things that are going on. So I guess, for example, like what's going on in the Netherlands, the fact that we have this bank of information behind us as well, it brings us to a seat at the table to influence some of the farming legislation that's coming down the road so that ALA are absolutely at the table in those discussions because ultimately what is decided at government level impacts our farmers hugely. Um, but bringing it back to the on the ground farm level, it is all about creating action plans <clears throat> so that they can, I guess, improve their performance um, and uh, be part of the journey of everybody getting to carbon, carbon net zero, which is a mighty task. So as mentioned, the, the farmers carry out an annual self-assessment. The data is reported through. So we have a platform that our farmers log in um, and then they have an advisory visit. And, and we've got the same company running the advisory visits kind of across all the areas. I think that's the same with our, our auditing systems as well. So we work very closely with external companies, but clearly they need to be external and independent. Otherwise, we're pretty much marking our own homework. So I think it's really important in the right areas to make sure that we are using external experts. And, and that results in us being able to show carbon footprint at farm level per country, per region. And we've actually got a tool on our website where the farmers can kind of um, toggle different things so they can compare themselves to a similar farm in their country or a similar farm across all countries, organic, conventional, grazing, not grazing. Um, and I think that's a really neat tool that um, people are starting to engage with now. And really, yeah, I guess, yeah, our, our final destination is carbon net zero by 2050. Uh, and I think we'd always said that if we hadn't have started on this journey with the climate checks when we did, we wouldn't have been in the position that we are now to potentially incentivize um, action on farms. So it's, it is, um, in hindsight, it's very good that we started as early as we did. And when we did start, it obviously was met with some nervousness and apprehension. Um, but we've got ourselves into a good place now. And I think we're, we're about to take that next step on the journey, which is about um, yeah, incentivizing behavior to make sure that farmers do make those changes, but so that they are, aren't out of pocket by making those changes. Um, yeah, and I think ultimately you, you can only get so far with knowledge transfer and asking people to do the right thing. I think sometimes it's, uh, is it a carrot or is it a stick? The government obviously go down a stick mentality sometimes with legislation or they put grants in place with a carrot and I think we're we're about to put a carrot in place for incentivizing um, of farm change so yeah that that probably rounds off the kind of climate aspect of my presentation so before I move on to calves I just wondered if there's any last questions I can't there, see the chat Megan so I don't know <laughs> yes there is quite a few questions um sure. so just the first one if uh, you mentioned that there was an incentive to reduce on-farm emissions is there a premium available from consumers of that product to pay for the incentive that you're paying to farmers? Yeah, so we're, that's exactly something that we're looking at at the minute as to how we, so when we started off with the carbon footprint, as soon as we had the data available, everybody got very excited and you start to then get customers say, well, I want the milk that's got the lowest carbon footprint. And that, that made us, I think, all stand back a bit and say, well, we can't be giving away our best stuff to when I say customers I mean retailers or people that we are producing milk on behalf of ultimately we want to um, we want to make sure the Arla brand is at the top of it and then see what's what we can give to customers so we're working on a strategy at the minute whereby how can we segment the milk stream um, to offer different levels of premiums um, so that we are exactly like you say recouping the money from the market because we can't pay out an incentive or pay a competitive milk price that allows our farmers to invest without recouping the money from the market so it would be making a big mistake if we gave this away for free and also just the actual development the investment getting all those advice out advisors out on farm to verify this information is hugely expensive so we have to recoup the money from the market so yeah we absolutely will charge at a premium and i think 
when you buy a branded product, you're already paying a premium. And that's, I guess, what is funding some of this as well. So making sure that we've got a branded strategy, which is bringing premium prices into the co-op is really important. Um, the two the two have to go hand in hand. So our marketing teams need to be running as hard at this as our farmers are. And that's like kind of when I come back to, it's a lot easier for the marketing team to to sell the fact that 100% of our farmers are using renewable energy versus 60 or 70%. So trying to explain to the farmers that if you're going to use renewable energy, it needs to be 100%, not 60 or 70, because that's not a stronger message. So I think it's also about educating everybody in the supply chain as to how this, how this works and how we capitalize on it. Thank you. And um, did you say those advisors visiting the farms, they're outside advisors, aren't they? You contact yeah, they're that external. out so that you're double checking. Yeah. So our, our farmers self-submit. Um, so that I, I guess that makes it a bit more efficient, the fact that they submit the information in their own time and they do it digitally. And then the advisors come on farm and almost double check it or look around the farm. So it's, it's a, I guess the visit is twofold. It's, it's partially advisory and partially verification. Cool. And um, another question here, does your net carbon zero 2050 target include the scope three emissions? Yes. The farm emissions, yes. Yeah. yeah, and that's why I was saying that the farm emissions are 85% of that. So this is why there's so much focus and investment going in at the farming. Yeah. Um, another question, uh, what type of data do you collect at farm? So what do the, what do the farmers have to put into your um, into, input into the... Yeah, so it'd be anything from, um, you know, purchased feed, uh, acres, hectares, grow, yields from those acres, uh, diesel use, electricity use, any, any inputs, basically. Uh, and I think um, uh, also where that feed is coming from, because there's a big difference between bought in protein that's coming from Brazil versus coming from, uh, I, so I think there's, there's kind of, clearly there's book values that sit behind this, but farmers will see that if they're buying in a lot of soya, their carbon footprint suffers as a, as a result of it because at the moment there isn't the transparency in the feed supply chains to, to be able to, I guess, segment that up. Um, so yeah, it's all those, it, it's similar really to the data that they're inputting when they're doing their own financial benchmarking. So the farmers who are already doing that, I think find this a lot less of a chore than the ones who maybe haven't been doing as much on farm monitoring management um, and it all depends how well you, you keep your records at home as well, because uh, there's definitely different versions of record keeping, whether it's uh, in a software and you can just press a button and it all comes out. Ultimately, we would love to get to the point where farmers are not duplicating, that they're putting it into one system for one thing. And we're just not there yet. Um, and I think that in the future, that is how we would like it to be, that the information comes straight, straight from farm. That would be, uh, I think, music to the ears of our farmers as well as... Um, uh, you know, it would cut out a lot of middlemen. And we know that uh, farmers don't have a heap of spare time. And, and this is always at the bottom of it. It's the last thing to get done, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we're definitely having conversations at the moment in NZ about um, trying not to duplicate work and um, yeah. create multiple different calculators. Um, so the data that you collect, is this used for anything else, like productivity um, decisions on farm or anything like that? Or is it purely yeah, so for you guys? I, and I, I think that's where we, we want to change it. So I think previously when farmers had submitted data for um, uh, for whether it's for Arla or for another customer-specific scheme, it felt like it was putting data in a system for it to tick a box to say, yep, we've done it. Whereas now trying to then use the, make sure that the data uses both ways. So I explained about how we've got a dashboard. We want the farmers to actually interact with the data, not just um, not just tick a box to say they've done it really. So I think the, the way that we're going with like those big five levers, there'll be it'll really start to um, show farmers who maybe weren't managing information as um, tightly beforehand to really look at their systems. And particularly in the UK, our, our version of Dairy NZ has been pushing the kind of systems um, conversation and, and you're starting to really see, I guess, the difference in you're either extreme uh, kind of intensive, try and get as much milk per cow as possible feeding those cows inside or you're going probably more of a irish new zealand system maximizing the grass block carving and um, we can see that in the carving data actually that you're, you're really starting to see people to pick a system and stick to it i think the more traditional 365 carving um somewhere in between housing the winter out in the summer uh, they're starting to be um less common and and that 
this data will show that. But I think ultimately we've got to pick what, what are we here to do as Arla. We're probably not here to tell the farmer how which system they should farm, but we're just putting the information in front of them and ultimately uh, for them and their advisors to then decide that. But we are gearing up quite a big kind of advisory arm of our business to be able to help farmers with that if they want to get the help from Arla. Thank you. And um, just another one more question, then we'll carry on. Um, what drives the, how much farmers get paid through Arla? Does it have an open market policy like NZ does? Um, so I guess by open market policy, that would be the GDT. Do you mean? So, yeah, I think the big thing is, so we have an internal milk price whereby we set an internal milk price to our sales colleagues and they can't sell below that, really. So we do have, I guess, a... Um, a multitude of different ways of working with customers so that some things are on really long-term contracts that last years other things are traded day to day um and that's that is really different across all the markets i think you know how things are traded in the middle east will be very different to how our <laughs> team here are trading with the uk's biggest retailers um so i would say uh there is transparency in terms of everyone is on the same milk price and it's the same milk price schedule for everybody so there's transparency farmer to farmer but i'm i'm not sure it's maybe quite as transparent as what, what you guys are doing because it's just such a diverse way of selling um versus i think you uh, I, I would say fonterra or whatever have quite a different strategy to us yeah that traded versus branded it's quite different yeah no definitely cool um thank you i'll let you carry great on. okay so i guess moving on to um before climate check came along uh, just general farm assurance and farm management was our uh, solid foundation of, of where we move up from. And we call it Arla Garden is basically our farm standard scheme. And that's all about to making sure you've got the right milk quality composition, our, uh, animal welfare, food safety. And I think there was a very kind of small environmental section that has grown massively. But all farmers have to abide by Arla Garden. So they might still have national farm assurance schemes, but they have to do Arla Garden as well. So in the UK, our farmers abide by the Red Tractor Scheme and they do Arla Garden. It's just part of being in the co-op. If you all want to get paid the same milk price, you all need to do the same same farm standards, um, which causes a bit of a headache at times, again, with data, data collection. Um, apologies for having two slides of farmers shoveling food. They do do more than that. <laughs> I don't know why I've got that. But um, So what it is, is it's about a holistic farm management program. So we've got checkpoints every quarter. Our farmers log in to an online system online again. We've gone down the fully online system. You can't do it on paper, which has been quite a change. And you almost check you, you go through your checkpoints to say, yes, I'm compliant. So it's a, it's a self-assessment, essentially. And then we have third party auditors, um, again, the same company is auditing across all seven countries um, and we're calibrating those auditors um, on a regular basis. We then have these different arms of uh, within our website, farmers can go and find more information. And um, so there's like a learning hub. There's also an advisory arm that I was, I was talking about. And it's about, I guess, making sure that we've got a really strong baseline of farm standards because we can do all of this climate stuff. But ultimately, if our welfare and our milk quality is not right, that is our license to produce. Um, and what we've seen, I guess, whilst I'm on a license to produce, is that an increasing pressure coming on the dairy industry uh, in terms of what happens uh, as a byproduct of the milk, milk production herd um, being dairy bull calves. And I know it's, bo it's bobby calves to you guys, but we saw a huge kind of attack on uh, the dairy industry and to be honest you know it's it's quite easy pickings when it comes to the bull calf problem and you know huge amounts of media uh, even billboards it was on the london underground um a, a serious attack on our industry and brand integrity you know it says it there brand integrity has never been more important um and this is something i think has been on the difficult pile for a really long time um and we decided that actually unless we take control and solve this ourselves we're leaving the gate wide open to be um, really open to criticism and uh, brand reputational damage so the this is the standard that we bought in uh we we announced it in 2019 um and it's i guess a very robust standard that covers both euthanasia and slaughter um and we worked through kind of three pillars of making sure our farmers breeding the right calf um, and, and by the right calf I'm talking about the beef calf here once the beef calf has hit the ground 
are they getting the right start? We know that um, calves are sometimes second, second, second class citizens on farms and definitely the non-dairy replacements can be even third class citizens on farms. And then once they're, once they're moving off farm, um, we do have farms that are dairy and beef and they'll rear everything through to finish. But, you know, ultimately a lot of guys, if they're dairy farmers, they're just, they don't want to be distracted. They want to look after their dairy herd um, and move those calves on elsewhere into the beef industry. So making sure that when you're moving the calf on, is it going to the best home? Have you got visibility of the supply chain that that calf's going down? Um, but we hit a huge amount of challenges in terms of TB restriction. I guess that's something that you guys don't have to deal with. But TB is a massive problem in the UK, whereby once a farmer goes down with TB, they are then completely restricted on their movements. They can't sell anything off farm. Um, and then that can mean that you have a massive backlog of uh, of calves especially if you're a block carver and you've got <laughs> tens of calves flying at you a day there's also small stature cows and what i mean by a small stature cow the jersey would be a prime example of that uh, the small frisians um because they ultimately the the dam of that calf just doesn't deliver for the beef industry um and it does cause problems for the beef industry in terms of just the carcass size it is reducing the efficiency of those meat plants if the carcass um the, kilos of meat per animal going down the line it does just reduce the efficiency of that line pure dairy pure dairy bread calves the black and white bull calf the the jersey calf bull calf is is a problem the beef industry don't look favorably upon those animals even though I'm, i i know that they are very good quality eating but they don't um they don't deliver what their customers want and poorly started calves there's a definitely a reputation of you know the dairy calves aren't looked after well they don't do well um, they're not strong enough kind of thing and ultimately we don't have we didn't have a huge amount of rearing capacity in the UK so there was all these things that when we set out on an 18 month time plan of what are the things that we need to solve or work towards with the rest of the industry um, these were the key things and the beef sector underlying profitability so we've got quite a shift in the UK beef sector from a, a suckler system through to a more uh, dairy beef system I think uh, it's over 50% now of the, the beef herd originates from a dairy cow. So we've already got, I think, a massive chain of carbs going from the dairy industry. And we know that the suckler herd is declining and that ultimately, I don't know what's going to happen with the, the, the future of the suckler herd here, but it's no secret that it's declining uh, and that there is a massive profitability issue. So we did a huge amount of work to try and help land this with not just with the other farmers but with the beef industry that are also going to be picking up the calves that, that come off of our farms so working with retailers and processors we have some integrated supply chain systems here i don't know how common that is there where you are literally linked up with a dairy farm um, and the retailer is almost underpinning that contract that they're going to take those those calves or, or working with a beef processor who basically coordinates up the supply chain. I would say that's um, not the norm. There's small pockets of that going on and people tend to dip and dip in and out of those supply chains, which is a real problem for the people facilitating them. Um, we've done breeding trials. Sex semen definitely wasn't new at the time that we brought this in, but it was um, the still a bit of nervousness around it. Projects about temporary calf housing. We know that the block carvers don't want to spend a lot of money on calf housing that's going to lay empty for huge months of the year but ultimately you still need good quality calf housing to give the calves a good start um, and engaging with loads of different stakeholders so particularly around the tv stuff we had loads of conversations with the government about how they can help farmers who are in that tv situation because there are approved routes that animals can move through a, a tv lockdown supply chain so that we don't end up with that uh, scenario that i said of lots of calves backing up on farm and it actually becoming a welfare issue we don't want to cause a brand risk issue from trying to solve another brand risk in that we're keeping animals on farms or keeping them alive and them not actually living a good quality of life producing a good product at the end of it so um there's a huge responsibility here that you don't accidentally cause another problem by trying to solve the initial problem which was brand risk from bull calves so we made up a position clear lots of farmer engagement workshops communications working with the beef sector um and the genetics industry as a, as I guess, a kind of trial triangle and really trying to get the retailers to back it as well, because the retailers are um, concerned about this consumer brand risk as well. Um, and trying to support opportunities for new entrants. We could see that there's also an aging population within the, the beef industry. There's a bit of people that are really keen to get into it, but haven't got the capital or don't have the capital to buy the calves, looking at 
risk sharing models where the dairy farmer puts the calf in for free um, and then they share the profit at the end of it. And that really incentivizes everybody to do a great job along the supply chain. So just trying to think of new and novel ideas to get get the um, wheel spinning and, and get more opportunities out there for the people who are keen um, keen to, to get going in farming and provides an opportunity um, to rear some good calves. But the calves need to be the right breed, the right health and have the right start. So just in terms of putting this into a bit of a timeline, we launched it in July 2019, and that came after a lot of conversations with a farmer working group. So this is back to this kind of democratic decision making. We've got to get the sign off from the farmers at the start, and that helps you bring everybody else along. At the same time, there's been huge conversations within the rest of the UK dairy and beef industry, um, and that has actually resulted in... Uh, I mentioned earlier, Red Tractor is our national farm assurance scheme, and that covers all, all agricultural sectors. They will be bringing in their calf standard from next year, um, whereas we've, I guess, kind of been uh, quite significantly ahead now. And the numbers speak for themselves. So up in the top right there, that uh, in last year, um, sex semen sales were up to 70% of all dairy semen sales. And I think that, that speaks volumes, the fact that actual change is happening on farm. Um, and, and then there's even more innovation going on as to how they're um, making the most of, they're now serving an awful lot of beef animals and making sure they're serving the right breeds. And I know that some people are, are doing um, beef sex semen so that you definitely get a beef, uh, a bull beef calf and that you get a female dairy calf. So that's a real change in where, where we have been. Um, but yeah, that that's a pretty whistle stop stop. stop from start to finish as to how we've I guess implemented a really big change um, for some farmers it was absolutely no change but for others it was a huge thing to do um, and ultimately how we've kind of yeah led the industry um, and pushed on that that difficult topic um, so yeah I think that's everything for me I'm very conscious of time <laughs> yes we are I'm running a bit short of time but I do have a couple of questions here Kate um, when you're implementing these changes that's quite a significant change in the dairy industry. What kind of, um, you obviously put in quite a lot of processes to help that. Um, and we also have um, that, that those changes are coming in New Zealand and we have a lot of challenges with um, capacity, infrastructure yeah. and unstable market. So what did you do to make it successful? Is there any particular things that um, other industries can pick up um, to make change successful? Yeah, I think definitely like mapping out who are all the different people you need to speak to. So uh, right the way through from the genetics industry is an obvious one because they have the ear of the farmer. They're a trusted advisor. They actually, um, you know, they hold a lot of the key key to this as to influencing what farmers are serving those cows to. Um, the guys who are in this in the selling end of the supply chain. So that's right the way through from there's a lot of live market selling here. Um, so how can they play a part that uh, the animals are still bought to the ring and sold in a live sense? Because that is a really big part of it's a big part of the community as well. We did get farmers saying if you just put everything into integrated supply chains, no one will ever see each other. And it actually causes a huge social uh, impact on farming. So that, that was a big thing to consider. Um, and the government one is a really big one. And ultimately, the, the government can change the legislation, but the retailers can bring uh, the money to make the the world go round in terms of actually making sure that everybody is taking a fair cut out of this supply chain because ultimately we don't want a load of unprofitable beef farmers either because that'll just result in the dairy farmers having to rear, rear all these calves as well so i think it's about everybody taking a fair look at the supply chain and seeing like i said some of those calves we we actually said okay fair enough if you're not going to uh, if, if you don't see the value in them as calves then let's do a profit share um, and the money comes back at the end when they've gone through the system. Um, so I think it's about looking at things very differently and having farmers that are willing to take a risk, but um, how you can then uh, help them to take that risk uh, by offering a bit of financial security with that as well. You can't just expect people to leap on the, uh, for, the for the greater good. So I think it's really important that you can use farmers as a, a case study and who are willing to trial things, but making sure that they're not taking a huge, huge risk with that. Absolutely. Yes. No, definitely need to start um yeah, rewarding people for taking those risks and taking those opportunities. Yeah. 
Um, just another interesting question. What's your thoughts or do you see a disruption in the market in regards to alternative proteins or plant replacements at Isla? Yeah, definitely. I think um, and that everything we've discussed today is all about, I think, putting us in the best position to counteract maybe some of the claims that those that those products are making. Um, so, like I said, the, the brand risk, it's, it's easy winning for the um, vegan agenda for us not to be caring for our calves properly or not to be having the highest standard of animal welfare on farm or to have a really bad carbon footprint. I think um, where legislation and things might change in the future is when they start to put carbon footprint attributable to nutrient density. It's going to be very difficult for them to match protein levels or the other nutrients that you can get from a litre of milk versus a litre of plant-based juice um so i think uh, and that's probably the same within the red meat sector as well you know the protein levels of animal protein versus um highly processed uh vegetable proteins i think that's a that's an opportunity um for us all to make sure that we capitalize on that but making sure our house is all house is in order from both the climate and animal welfare aspect will give us the best chance of competing um but also recognizing that people need to eat um high quality protein and potentially I think leaning into the fact that eating less of it as well so how do we then deal with that potentially some of it some of it is about a lower consumption for people to have a lower carbon footprint themselves um, and that's quite hard with everything that we've discussed on growth agenda and pushing sales and pushing volume um, but you also have to take a holistic look at it um, as to yeah what, what it actually means for the planet so um, but I, I would say the biggest thing is getting our house in order first so that we're in a, a good position to be uh, less less criticized by some of those really strong agendas that are that are baffling us at the moment no absolutely i completely agree with you and just one last question um what do you see as the main drivers in the next 10 years for food production i think you've probably covered it in just that little talk there but um yeah yeah just some key drivers that you see in the dairy industry and in the in the primary industry i guess in the uk yeah i think exactly what I've already hinted on uh, food labeling um, because you know at the moment we have like a traffic light system on our food for fat protein sugar salt in the future is that going to be uh, how many liters of water did it take to produce this product or how many kilo uh, how many grams of carbon um, and we need to be ready for that I think um, but I, and, and I, it's all about I think then hopefully it won't be looked at in isolation it will be related to what are the calories or the grams of that food product bringing in with you? Um, but we've already touched on it as well with the Netherlands situation, how our farmers operate within um, uh, legislation, which is ultimately out of our control. But as a, a big organisation, how we can use our strength and uh, be seen as leaders of the industry to then influence what's going on. Um, because farmers, I guess, are notoriously like takers of prices takers of <laughs> market conditions and things and you know how hopefully our, our strength as a cooperative and putting ourselves at a leading position does get you a seat at the table or an ear in the conversation um, so I think that's really important and, and legislative changes are going to be one of the biggest challenges that we face and sorry just one more question um, which is quite a good one so the biggest part of scope three emissions is animal ruminant activities which you showed yeah. in the diagram what is Arla's approach on balancing it out have you seen any promising new technologies or supplements yeah so we are actually we've got a feed additive at the minute that's we've got on i can't remember how many farms but it's about twenty thousand cows that this feed additive is being fed to so it's recently been licensed for the for the european market which since Brexit means that we can't have it over here. So we haven't got it here in the UK just yet, but we have got cows on the continent that are trialing the feed additive. I do think the feed additives will have a place, but I'm not sure they're going to be the silver bullet that everybody's hoping they will be. And I think the same goes for carbon sequestration. I think a lot of farmers are thinking, oh, look, all that grass I've got out there, that's just sinking in the carbon. Um, and I think that they definitely have a role to play. But as I mentioned earlier, when we've mapped out where are uh, the incremental drops in the 30% by 2030 or by net zero by 2050 they're like the finishers they're the last little bit the big wins are to come from just on-farm efficiency um but we can't get away from the fact that the, that that ruminant animal the way in which she works is that she does produce emissions and how we're going to counteract that 
um, we're always going to be looking at new innovations and have got quite a significant investment in innovation and R&D to look at that because that's that is one of the biggest challenges we face. Right. And you, and you spend money on your own R&D, on your own research and stuff? Of yeah. 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 And we also link up with where there's opportunities to tap into, again, uh, government or international um, funds as well. So, yeah, we, we put money into our own research and we've actually collaborated with some major competitors, so like Nestle, uh, McDonald's, uh, and we're all working together on a carbon sequestration project which has been running for about four years now. So that's kind of a pre-competitive um, area where we do, uh, and I think, I don't know if Fonterra in it as well, actually, but that's about all these food companies coming together to bottom out what is the carbon sequestration model that we're all going to work to, because it doesn't work if we're trying to fight against each other on the science. Um, and there's so much different science on that. Absolutely. Hey, I think we've just run out of time tonight, but it's been so interesting talking to you, Kate, and thank you so much for your time. Um, it's a bit early in the morning, so I hope that you have a good day. <laughs> thank um, you very much. But my key messages that I got out of it um, were that be ahead of the game, um, have a consumer mindset, so think about what the consumer is going to want and then try and get a system. Um, collect data I think um, data is going to be really important into the future and just with your the um, climate data that you guys have you can um, show so much and market that and get a premium for that and I think um, if we start collecting more and more data we'll be able to do that too in New Zealand um, and when there's my other key message is when there's a challenge look for an opportunity so even with your um, calves a challenge uh the you know the sheep and beef industry the red meat industry also has an opportunity to um to take there and i think um that's going to be really important in the new zealand primary industry in the years ahead so just once again thanks everyone for being here um if you've got any feedback please get in touch with myself or hannah um any questions or any ideas for future events um send a flick an email to us or give us a call um but yeah just one last time thank you so much kate for for joining us and for sharing your your ala story thank you no, thank you and thanks for the good questions it's been good